Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions. But, you know, as I've said before, there is no such thing as a wrong opinion. Opinions are like noses. Everybody's got one. The exchange of views, fair debate, no cancelling, no interrupting, no aggressive responses. We want to hear what people have to say. Whatever side you're on. And the listener, the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. You're on Reality Check Radio. Good morning, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. So lovely to have you along. We've got a great show lined up, as I think you should expect, because... We work hard to make you a good show and we take your feedback and we try and give you the good stuff. First up, we've got Professor Paul Moon. There's been an extraordinary document published by the Human Rights Commission called Maranga Mai. Oh, what a shocker. What a shocker. And it's been given this, what is it, the word, the impromptu of the Human Rights Commission. It's all about how horrible we all are. We're all racist. And how we need to upend New Zealand and rebuild it with an entirely new constitution because of the treaty. Well, Dr. Paul Moon's a historian, looked at the history that this document was reporting. Not good. So he wrote a piece about what's called the Doctrine of Discovery just picks on one small piece of the Human Rights Commission report and tears it to shreds. Well, we're going to find out what happened, why the report's wrong, and what happened when it was pointed out to our Human Rights Commissioner that their basis for their call for transformational change of New Zealand and a new constitution is deeply, deeply flawed. Also joining us is retired judge David Harvey. And he writes on Substack uh, called A Halfling's View, a weekly column. You should read it. It's wonderful. And he's done a series on the disinformation project about how the government narrative is true. And if we disagree with it, 
we've been propagandized and we're suffering from misinformation or worse, disinformation. Well, Judge David Harvey applies his legal mind to this minefield and this quagmire. And we'll be talking to him this morning. Thank you for tuning in. Remember, you can send me a text at 2057. Email me inbox at radiocheck.radio. How much I enjoy being with you. I hope you enjoy being with me. Just even a fraction of that amount because you'd be tuned in if you did. Thank you for listening. Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We are always, I believe, truly blessed with our guests. We get such wonderful guests on. Well, we're in for a treat now because we have Professor Paul Moon. And I want to just read out for you his degrees. Paul has a Bachelor of Arts, History and Political Studies degree from the University of Auckland, New Zealand. He has a Master's of Philosophy from Massey University. He has a Master of Arts from Auckland University of Technology. He has a Doctor of Philosophy from Massey University. And he has a Doctor of Literature from Auckland University of Technology. Think about that. Two Master's degrees and two PhDs. Professor Moon, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Well, I'm very well. And um, I have met you. I have enjoyed uh, meeting you. I have enjoyed your work immensely. Uh, the books of yours that I have read, I have not read them all. You're prolific. Yes, yes and, I'm quite busy. Yes, and we'll possibly get on to that because, well, let's do it now. You don't have to write books, do you? No, no, it's not a requirement for anything, really, no. And yet you can't stop. Um, well, I'm going to stop at one point, I know. Um, as as you get older, I think a lot of things start to slow down. Someone once described it as gradually losing your literary libido. Um, I'm not quite ah. sure if that's a good analogy. But um, but no, there's certainly a lot of topics that, that haven't been investigated. And one of the problems living in a country with a relatively small population is that there aren't many people who do history. No. So same number of topics, but many fewer people actually addressing them. And, of course, it can be readily captured. Yes, that's right. I worked out, I briefly was at a university, and I worked out like you could become an expert in any field in New Zealand in about six months. Um, yeah, possibly a few more months after <laughs> that, a few more decades. But um, Well, for the purposes of the media, um, yeah. tell me, it must be, extremely hard work writing a, his, a a book on history and lonely like writing writing is lonely because you're sort of doing it in your own head but i think history must be extremely hard work because you're sort of fossicking around in in dusty archives it is um there in a very general sense there are two sorts of history writers one of them is the sort that simply goes online and, and looks at other books and journal articles and gets bits from them and does a patchwork quilt of that and, and they've got their book. And those books you can usually tell are derivative and a bit dull, quite frankly. Um, but some of us spend a lot of time 
going through the archives, as you say. And it is laborious, and you can spend many days, weeks, and months on something that will never see the light of day. That you you explore and you explore, and it, it never gets published because it doesn't it, it doesn't fit into the book. But you have to do it. You have to make sure you've un, upended every stone and examined every bit of evidence, so that when the book's finished, it's as comprehensive and as representative as it possibly can be. But it must be wonderful too. Because when you're doing this, I imagine you sort of get to know your topic and the people extremely well and their sort of life because you're reading contemporaneous accounts. And that must be very enriching. Well, it's one of the principles of history is that every document you come across has a motive. And the first thing you have to do is work out who wrote the document and what their motive mm. was. No, mm. no, no documents spontaneously appear. And so a lot of the work is, as you say, getting to know people in the sense of discovering what their motives are. Mm. And you'd be amazed if you look back, say, at your own emails over the last five years, every single email, we could probably work out roughly what your motives are. They're yes. a real revelation. It's quite frightening in a way for some people. But um, so, so a lot of the work, is involved in trying to work out why this was written, the purpose for it, who's the intended audience, what did the author hope to achieve by writing this letter or this report or whatever. And that shines through after a while. I had a funny experience of history because I um, wrote a book once about my life. And I get, I had, you know how we have stories that we tell ourselves and we tell other people. Mm. And I believe them to be true. But I was very conscious of politicians and prominent people who had told a story, say, from their childhood, which turned out to be not accurate, mm. or the complete reverse. And I went through what I'd written, and I think I took out 50% of it. If I could, I mean, truly, because I thought, huh, I, I can't guarantee this is how it actually played out. Because in your mind, I've retold that story, I've retold that story, I've retold that story, and each time I've told it, I've embroidered it, I'm sure. <laughs> and that's the problem that we have, isn't it? Even our own life. Oh, absolutely. Not, and and we, we can't have an accurate history of our own life that we lived. No. But we believe we do. We, we, we're convinced that our recollection yes. is correct and look, I've got a good memory, I remember what happened. Um, nice. I mean, there's a simple test. Uh, imagine if you're on a dark country road um, with, your, with your wife and you nighttime it's raining, no cell phone coverage, you get a flat tyre. Um, you get out and change it and you get cold and wet and muddy and grubby and you go inside and you're a bit back in the car and you're a bit frustrated. And your wife turns to you and says, you know, one day we'll look back at this and laugh. And you, you, you're you not in the mood for that sort of comment, but it's absolutely true. <laughs> it is true. A year or two later, you laugh. Now, the event hasn't changed. Your emotional reaction to the event, you were frustrated and angry at the time. But the way you recollect it is you laugh at it. And why is that? Because what we do is we tend to reshape past experiences partly as a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. So we make them less painful, less... We take off the sharp edges. And so our mind... It doesn't change the events, but it changes how we see the events, and that's very common. And, of course, we can take any uh, or many criminal cases, particularly high-profile murders, and you're in a court, 
and you're trying to establish the facts of the case of who did what when. Mm -hmm. And it's extremely problematic. It's not necessarily straightforward. So it is, uh, and witness accounts vary. Uh, oh, my goodness. Now, we're going to continue in this vein, but we've got a uh, an immediate reason for having you on. And it's our friend, I use that word in quotes, Dr. Paul Hunt. He's a, a human rights commissioner. And there is a report published by the Human Rights Commission, and it's called, and please, if I get it wrong, correct me, Maranga Mai. Have I got that near enough? That's the, that's the name of the report, yes. Maranga Mai. And what it says is it's a subtitle, is the dynamics and impacts of white supremacy, racism, and colonization upon tangata whenua in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And in the introduction to the report, there's a message from the Chief Human Rights Commissioner, Paul Hunt, and it's this. I just want to take the time for readers, because they possibly won't have heard of this report. And he says, Maranga Mai is a feminological report, meaning... It focuses on the experience of racism, colonization, and white supremacy by Tangata Whenua. Through this research and narrative, Tangata Whenua speak. The Commission is honoured to publish their research, analysis, stories, and views. Maranga Maya provides a crucially important perspective on extremely challenging issues which will define Aotearoa for years to come. The report compels us to acknowledge the racism and white supremacy that was woven into the fabric of British colony, of the British colony as immigrants settled in these islands. There's only one authentic way of confronting this element in our collective history. Tell the truth. Listen with an open heart. Look for fear and peaceful reconciliation. Imagine a future of partnership and promise and commit to action and justice. This report contributes to the first step, truth-telling. It's wonderful, Dr. Moon, isn't it, Professor Moon Paul? It's wonderful, truth-telling. Yes, and, and I, I just wish that the Commission had taken that advice when it produced the report. It would have been helpful. It's extraordinary to read that and to read beside it your report. And then not only to read your report, Paul, but the story around your report. For example, who wrote Marangamai is a state secret. This is astonishing. This is a... a a, a government <laughs> agency, um, and and I, I look. I came across this report because someone forwarded it to me, and they said you ought to read this. And I'm okay. Well, I have a look at it. Um, the more I looked through it, the more concerned I became, um, and then horrified. And I thought, who wrote this? If this was a high school history assignment, it would have failed. It it fails at the very basic level of of correct historical analysis. And I thought, how on earth could this happen? So I 
I wrote to the Commission saying, look, there are some quite severe deficiencies with this report. They said, would you would you like to meet with a committee to discuss it? And I said, well, I don't know if discussing it would be adequate. I said, I'm, I'm happy to do a, just to do a quick review of it. They said that would be helpful. Um, and this is after it was published already? Well, after it's published, yeah. And mm-hmm. I, um, so I... The more I reviewed it, I thought, look, I, this this could take years because it's just that bad. The, the the deficiencies are so bad. So I looked at one area, one very small area, just a, I think a handful of paragraphs in the report, and focused on that. And just as as an illustrative example of how bad the report was in every respect. And I needed, in order to do this review, I needed some information. I thought, well, what are the credentials of the authors? And of course, the authors aren't listed on the report. So I wrote to the Human Rights Commission and they they said, we'll treat this as an Official Information Act request. And we, <laughs> well, that's convenient, <laughs> saves saves me the hassle. I mean, this, this, is, this is absurd. It's extraordinary. It is. Um, now, the, the, they then said, we can't tell you because for all sorts of bogus reasons, the authors have to remain anonymous. And I thought, that's odd. Um, I then said, well, look, what peer review process did the report go through? Because when you commission a report, and the Human Rights Commission obviously paid, I don't know how much, um, but it would have been substantial. They they paid for this report. You get a peer review. You get a, a one or two people who are experts in the field to review the report, say this is this is good, this needs work, you've missed something here, and so on. And I said, was the report peer reviewed? And and they wrote back saying, yes, it was. I said, who peer reviewed it? Again, they can't provide the information. I said, can you show me, you know, redact the names, but show me the peer review report? And they said, oh, it was informal, an informal peer review. Well, I've never heard of an informal peer review. If you have a, a document produced by a government agency, a major piece of research, the peer review is written and they appear not to have any records of that. I had questions about some of the sources used. There were interviews cited. I said, can I have a transcript of the interview? Um, they said, no. And I said, can, can I have, again, all the names redacted, but just where are the documents? They can't provide them. And the more I looked into it, just in, in terms, this is just not the content, but just the process. Uh, something smelt odd. We don't know the names of the people who wrote it. We don't know if there was a peer review or not. The Human Rights Commission gave two answers to that. One there was, one, well, sort of there wasn't. We don't know what the actual sources were in some cases because they won't provide that. So that was a very bad beginning to, to things. And then it got worse, of course, when you start looking at the content. The the extraordinary thing is, is if you were Paul Hunt and the commission, you and I would die of embarrassment. Um, I certainly would. I, 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 again, I was scratching my head wondering how this could be published. I did contact Paul Hunt and he asked for some more information, um, but he wasn't prepared to accept anything wrong in the report. Now, even regardless of what your ideological view is on anything, there are some clear deficiencies, both in method, approach, analysis, research. That these are obvious deficiencies. Not to admit that is a bit concerning, but I think ideology overtook evidence in this case. Yes, and I mean, Mr Hunt has set himself up, hasn't he? Because 
he's made the claim of truth-telling. Mm. You and I would be much, I'm sure with your history, you're a bit more circumspect. You know, you're doing your best and uh, you're always open to be corrected and you're open and transparent with your references and the processes that you followed and your name is on it. But here is this report set up as telling the truth and yet we can't know who wrote it, we can't know who peer-reviewed it, we can't know the process of the peer review, we can't see the contents of the peer review. And as soon as you start reading it, you realise it's hokum. And I just want to read on a bit further for um, listeners because uh, Mr Hunt goes on to say this. Many countries have troubled pasts and some like Canada and South Africa, have established a process to help them heal and chart a way forward. Marangamai takes a leaf out of their book and recommends that for a three-year period, a truth, reconciliation and justice commission is established. This time-bound commission would hear and document Tangata Whenua's experience of colonisation, racism and white supremacy and recommend meaningful pathways towards reconciliation and justice by 2040. The role of the Waitangi Tribunal is extremely important and groundbreaking, but hitherto it is mainly focused on specific treaty settlements. A Truth, Reconciliation and Justice Commission has a larger vision of truth-telling, national reconciliation, and constitutional reform. So this, this is the first step of truth-telling, to lead to constitutional reform, and yet we, I mean, it's a bit overblown for a piece of work that we can't know who wrote it. Yes, and and look, if it was anonymous for whatever reason, um, and I'm prepared to accept that there are reasons, I don't know what they are, I don't think they can be good ones. You mentioned the Waitangi Tribunal. People who produce reports on similar topics for the tribunal have their names on those reports, and those reports are peer-reviewed, and they're open to scrutiny and analysis and criticism. That, that's puzzling that this Human Rights Commission report isn't. But putting that aside, the issue of the truth itself, the way it's framed in those statements is concerning, because anyone, as you pointed out, who's involved in history knows that you, you don't get the absolute truth. You strive for it, but there will be shortcomings in your research. There has to be, mm. because the evidence is incomplete. You, you don't have full evidence about the past. We only have the surviving fragments of that evidence. Mm. So we have to assemble as best we can a sense of what happened based on the surviving evidence. But to make proclamations about truth and so on really suggests that you're divorced from understanding what history is. Paul Hunt's an academic. So he was a professor of law. I think he's got a law degree from Cambridge or Oxford. Um, it's not like he shouldn't be aware of the research process, research method of sifting facts, of a philosophy of epistemology, and the difficulties with it, is it? He's no, not and a, he, he, he's not a slug. No, and this is one of the points I raised in my review of their report, is um if you look at the sources they've used, anyone dealing with New Zealand history ought to know the main sources. 
the main bodies of documents as well as the main publications. And I was staggered when I went through the, the bibliography for this report by the Human Rights Commission. They, they, they focus in part of it on colonisation and yet they haven't referred to the main published works on it. They haven't referred to the vast body of documents that exist that are readily available. Great Britain parliamentary papers, the, the records of the government of New South Wales going back to the beginning of the 19th century. Um, the, these vast repositories which give detail about motive, about the approach to colonisation. Um, and none of these are referred to. The major texts, people like... Um, well, texts like Ward's A Show of Justice, which came out in the early 70s, which is a, a seminal work on colonisation, a very sound, robust piece of academic research. They don't draw on that. What they do use uh, really accounts that you'd, you'd have to say, in a lot of instances, are second-rate sources. And you can just read the titles of them. You can see that these are um, very much ideological pieces. So the absence of, of the source material, the absence of evidence as a foundation for that report is staggering. And I, I was that's another area of severe deficiency with it. You, as you talk, and enough, I read your report twice, most carefully, because I enjoyed it. You've got a wonderful prose style, and it was an area that I didn't know anything of. But... It's strange because you write it academically and appropriately, but underpinning it, I sensed that you were incensed. There, there are two ways of dealing with versions of the past, depending on what those versions are. Typically, if you come across a version of, of an event that's different from yours, you, you try to learn why is it different, why does someone see it differently from me, and you, you try to look at how they came to that conclusion, how they've assembled the evidence and so on. But underlying all that is that the, the source you're looking at hopefully is truthful. The person who wrote that article or book hopefully has a desire to find out what happened and why. In this case, and I focused on just one small aspect of Maranga Mai, which is the, the section dealing with the doctrine of discovery, um, it was absolutely false. This isn't about interpretation. This isn't about one source versus another. This is about people who are promoting an idea that is completely false. And I've had historians contact me since saying they're staggered that anyone would promote this idea of the doctrine of discovery applying to New Zealand. I have history teachers from around the country contacting me saying they've been told they have to teach this now because it appears in a Human Rights Commission report, even though they know it's not true. So this is something that that is beyond normal debate. This is something that's just patently false and it's been propagated as being true in this, this curious report. You wouldn't expect it in a Western democracy. I mean, like you say, we all make mistakes, we get things wrong, um, we can believe things to be true and we can write a report for a government department, we can believe it, we'll die in the ditch believing it. The government department gets a critique such as yours and quietly shelves it, puts it aside, dies of embarrassment, says that was a mistake. Uh, these guys are immune to any criticism. Yes, the response is the the typical response, I suppose, in a way. Um, they say, well, look, that's your interpretation. And yes. that's, quite frankly, not good enough. Yes, no. everyone has an interpretation of the past, but this goes way beyond the idea that, well, one person looks at it this way, another person looks at it that way. Mm. 
this is a case where they're talking about a particular doctrine applying to New Zealand's colonisation and absolutely it did not. And I've provided all the evidence for that and they haven't provided one piece of evidence, not one fragment to say to the contrary. Let's get into this because this is, I realise what you did now and I appreciate it more because when you read, uh, I don't know, it's 160 pages, it's quite a big report, 162 pages in total, and it's almost like every paragraph has got a wrong thing in it. And what you've done is saying, my God, if I wrote a critique of this thing, it would be a 1,000 pages long. And so you have focused on one particular thing to show you how egregious that is, and you can do that comprehensively. But I think the point you would make is, this is not the only bit that's wrong. No, and I mean, look, I did all this in my own time. I don't get paid to do it, um, and it consumes a lot of hours. But it was necessary to correct the record because it was so far wrong and so misleading and potentially problematic in that it starts to enter the bloodstream. These suggestions, and they start to circulate. And look, I've seen this happen. And um, this idea of the doctrine of discovery is one example where it's it's frequently talked about. Tell us what that is. Tell us, let's dive into your report now, because we've done the throat clearing. We can get to the essence of it. Yes, well, what, what the Human Rights Commission is saying is that in the late 1400s, okay, so bear that in mind, Europe didn't know about New Zealand's existence until 1642, but in the late 1400s, the Catholic Church issued a series of edicts or papal bulls or pronouncements, basically saying that, and this is in the wake of Columbus's discoveries, New World, if you go to a non-European or non-Catholic country, you have the right to declare sovereignty over that country, to subjugate its people, to extract wealth from it, and so on. So it's an invasive so-called doctrine. Now, that's that's the doctrine of so-called doctrine of discovery. It's, it's based on some papal bulls in the late 1400s. What the Human Rights Commission has said is, ah, that proves that that was the British approach to New Zealand in the 19th century, that it came here to control the country, subjugate the indigenous population, strip the country of resources, whatever else. Um, Joining those dots is absolutely false. And I've outlined the main points in the report as to why that is. Firstly, and this is something actually a a specialist on on Catholic history contacted me recently and she said, look, she she read the report, she she could not believe how naive the writers of it were. These papal bulls weren't the sort of announcements that all of Europe suddenly followed. Quite the contrary. These papal bulls were efforts by the Vatican to catch up with what was already happening. The Spanish were um, getting involved in colonies in the New World, and the church said, oh, look, you're doing this, maybe think about this. So they had no force, really. The second point is the particular papal bulls that the Human Rights Commission has zeroed in on were overridden the following year. So 1493, there's a papal bull comes out about this sort of intervention. 1494, Spain and and Portugal ignore it and come up with a treaty of themselves, of of their own, to deal with intervention. And by the 1500s, the Catholic Church is saying the opposite, saying if you go to a country, you have to preserve the cultures and the people and protect them and not 
not do these sorts of things. You won't read that in the Human Rights Commission report either. So that's that's the first part of it. That this idea that the Catholic Church directed colonization is wrong, and it's dealt with in a highly selective way. Now that would have been bad enough if if it had been left there. But then the Human Rights Commission report goes further to say that it effectively influenced the colonization of New Zealand. Now that's wrong for a host of reasons. The the British government in the 19th century had no was under no influence whatsoever from the Catholic Church. None whatsoever. There's not a single scrap of evidence for centuries beforehand that the the, the English colonial officials and later British colonial officials followed this doctrine. It wasn't even seen as a doctrine. That's that's the first stage. The second stage, of course, is if you look at how British policy was formed, and anyone who's studied this or read about it will know that in the early decades of the 19th century, it was very much a chaotic process. Two key select committee reports from 1837 and 1838 in, in London should have been referred to because they show how policy was developed in, in parts in relation to New Zealand. There was no intent to dominate the indigenous population. There was no intent to apply some sort of doctrine of discovery. Then there's the hard evidence. The evidence and Cook's instructions that he was given in 1768 the year before he arrived in New Zealand, James Cook was told, if you find New Zealand occupied, you can only claim sovereignty, and this is the key phrase, with the consent of the natives. It's the exact opposite of this idea that you can conquer and subjugate people, which is the essence of that doctrine of discovery. The British said from 1768, we need consent to get involved in another colony. And of course, in 1839, the instructions for the treaty, the fact that there is a treaty itself is, is proof that the doctrine didn't apply, that Britain wanted the consent of the indigenous population rather than just going in guns blazing. And there's example after example, document, evidence after evidence, circumstantial evidence, all, all sorts of evidence points to one one thing, which is this doctrine has no application whatsoever in New Zealand's colonisation. And all I asked from the commission was one piece of evidence to the contrary. Just show me where I'm wrong. And if I was wrong, I'd apologize and pack up and say, look, I'm sorry, I have made a mistake. I missed out this crucial bit of evidence here or this insight there. And I'd apologize and I'd correct my research accordingly. That's what academic work is all about. You're constantly sculpting and fine tuning what you do. But of course, they didn't have any response to that. And that, that's the troubling part of it, because I think deep down they know that a lot of the information in that report is fabricated. It's not based on history. It's scandalous. What well, is? I mean, it's scandalous in the, in the sense, firstly, that taxpayers paid for this. Secondly, that the commission refuses to accept any error whatsoever. That That's almost inconceivable. Um but also an error on this scale. And look, every historian I've talked to about this um, has said plainly they cannot believe the commission got it this wrong. And now I understand why the authors are kept anonymous, because I imagine um, if their names were released, it would be humiliating for them. You're a historian. You've worked in the universities. This is now not uncommon. Is it? I think that there are people um, who are interested in this issue of colonisation, and they issue, they're interested in, in the past, and they've they've 
And I think they sincerely believe certain versions of the past. And that can be a problem because what they believe, or what I believe for that matter, is totally irrelevant. Ultimately, we have to be guided by evidence. Mm. Our view of the past has to be informed and based on evidence, not on what we think happened or what our intuition tells us or whatever. And the other point, of course, is that colonization is enormously complex as a process and it's very nuanced. It's got lots of different moving parts in this big machine. To simply say it's it's this or that, to have these very sort of monolithic black or white views of, of processes is in itself misleading. It's It's basically simplifying and generalizing things to an extreme extent, which doesn't help us understand the past. It only ends up reinforcing prejudices. And this is across the political spectrum. It applies on the right, it applies on the left. And I think all that's really important, ultimately, as I say, that we have an evidence-based approach to understanding the past. What we think about it is up to us, but it has to be grounded in evidence. Um. It's hard to explain or discuss or understand the enormity of this because what you have here is a fabrication. Yes, it's it's outside, as I say, it's outside the normal boundaries of what constitutes history. And if you read histories of various topics there there's a, a broad range of interpretations new zealand colonization is a good example um, and over the years and over the decades views about colonization changes social views social morals about was it good bad and different these these things change people bring new perspectives to existing evidence and so on this is all part of the the apparatus of history and and it will continue to be the case and there, there are things we we may agree on things we may not agree on um, that's fine, but this is this is not in that realm. This is something that a claim has been made that is you can prove is completely incorrect. That's well, it's one hundred and eighty. It's one hundred and eighty degrees wrong. It's like well, it is. pointing yes. in the complete wrong direction. Exactly. I'm, I know very little of history, uh, but the idea that what the Pope said in the fifteen hundreds or fourteen hundreds would impact on Britain in the 19th century, I know is absurd. Of course. Well, <laughs> um, it is. <laughs> I mean, that just you'd say, hang on. Um, tell me, what did you expect? You've written your response, which people can Google and find. What did you expect to be the response from the commission and the news media to your critique? Well, I previously sent a summary of this to the commission, and uh, their response was, I, I think, disappointing is the best way to describe it. Um, they didn't accept, well, they didn't rather engage with any of the, the arguments or any of the evidence. Uh, essentially, they said, look, that's your view. We have a different view. Now, that sounds reasonable on the surface, Except that if, if you imagine this is a court case and it's a murder trial and and um, you know the judge finds the the defendant guilty of murder and and, and the defence lawyer says, well, that's your view. We interpret it differently. Well, no, no, the decision's made based on the evidence. Um, the 
Commission seems not willing to accept the evidence. They absolutely are not willing to disclose crucial details about the report. Um, so I think that's reached a dead end there. It's a bit of a cul-de-sac in a way that you, know, you can go round and round, but you're not going to progress far. Um, there, there doesn't seem to be much interest from the media, and I think partly because it's a topic that requires a bit of analysis and a bit of thought. It's not something you can summarise in, in a soundbite. And for, I, I suspect a lot of people, they might think, well, this is history. This is old, old stuff. It has no bearing whatsoever. And so there hasn't been a great deal of interest there. However, um, my review has been circulated online. I think it's had 60 or 70,000 views of it. Um, my goodness. Which is interesting. And the feedback I've had, as I say, from academics, including from overseas, um, has been very supportive. And they are also surprised. A lot of them weren't aware of this Human Rights Commission report. Now that they are, um, and they've had a chance to look at it themselves, Academics with other areas of specialty are saying, "Well, look, we're concerned about this part of it, and this part of it's wrong." So it's it's a it's a fundamentally flawed report. But um, in response to your question as to what the reaction is, it's it's muted. I have just googled that great quote from George Orwell from 1984 because I was trying to get it accurate. And I'm sure you're familiar with it. And he stated, those who control the present control the past. And those who control the past control the future. It's absolutely sort of, right. Yes. And so this isn't just history. Well, no, it's not. And I think this is, <clears throat> this is one of the, points about history that a lot of people aren't aware of. I mean, the, the common question I, I, I get on occasion anyway, that's, that's the most common question about history I get is, why bother? Why bother studying something that's already happened? And it seems like a, a fair question on the surface, but if you look at what happens in, in countries where there are revolutions, one of the first things that happens after revolution is that history textbooks get rewritten. And the mm. reason is that a lot of people in, in, in positions of authority understand the absolute potency of history. Yes, it's what happened in the past, but it, it plays all sorts of roles. It's part of the, the architecture of our identity. And the more we learn about history, the more intricate that architecture becomes. But if you're fed false history, then by implication, you can start to see your identity as something that it isn't. And it's very, history is crucially important for how we see ourselves and how we see ourselves in society. It's also, a, if you like, a great instruction manual. Um, I remember when the, the, the Americans invaded Afghanistan a few decades ago, and it didn't work out well. <laughs> the, the, you know, the world's biggest superpower probably um, couldn't, couldn't quite subjugate this very small, arid piece of territory. If they had read their history, they would have found out, well, a bit before then, the Soviets had tried with the same result. And if the Soviets had read their history, they would have found out in the 19th century, the British had tried with the same result. So if you follow this instruction manual, you can avoid mistakes and you can also work out, ah, this worked in the past, we'll do this, or this didn't work, we'll do this. Mm. A lot of our economic policy is based on history, that what does and doesn't work in the past. And we know, for example, um, in, in Weimar, Germany, how do you solve the economic crisis? You just print more money. Well, 
we can go back now and look at that history and find out what happens. You get hyperinflation. Unfortunately, Zimbabwe wasn't aware of that history and it made the same mistake. Former Yugoslavia wasn't aware of that history, made the same mistake. Um, if you are aware of history, you can avoid these pitfalls. So history has use to us there. It informs our identity and it also informs the way we see the world. And that's very powerful. And so anyone who dismisses it as, well, it's just, you know, something trivial that happened in the past, that's not the case. It's also very important, I would suggest, about how we see ourselves personally. Very much so. I grew up and went to school in the 60s, and I was very proud to be a New Zealander. And I was very proud of what had been achieved in New Zealand. And I was very proud of race relations in New Zealand and the welfare state and the care we had for each other. I was actually proud of our history. Um, I readily, and had pointed out to me often by my teachers, of the extraordinary mistakes that were made and of the terrible things that were done. So it wasn't, if you like, a sanitized view of history, but it made me feel good about my country and it made me feel good about myself. And I've got little kids now at school. And because of work such as this, they're actually made to feel rather poorly about themselves and about their country. Because what Paul Hunt is saying is that our history, we suffer such a thing as apartheid in our past or an extreme example would be the Nazis in the past. Something happened that was terrible and because of who you are, you have to bear some responsibility for this. And so it is having a dramatic impact on our sense of self, isn't it? It is. And this is this is the power of history. I remember in the in the 1980s, um, uh, I spent some time in, in what was then Yugoslavia, and um, it was a socialist slash communist state run by uh, being run by a dictator. I'd been there in the 70s when Tito was still alive. And there was a great deal of, of patriotism. Um, the vast majority of the population very proud of being Yugoslav. Uh, um, this is in the 80s. You go, you go ahead just four or five years after I was there, um, one of the most bitter civil wars in European history broke out because people decided that they didn't belong to the national group anymore. They belonged to other national groups within it. And they wanted a different way of country we run they wanted independence and so on now there's legitimate claims for that but the way it played out was devastating um, tens or hundreds of thousands of people killed many hundreds of thousands of people ethnically cleansed um, and these things happened very quickly this was the surprising thing for me I, last time I was, I'd been there before the war was 1988 and th- just three years later you got this virulent form of, of nationalism erupting in various parts of the former Yugoslavia. And history is used to justify that. Of course it is. Uh, history, uh, and, and it's almost, now the, the in this case, the, the facts might have been absolutely true, but the way that they're assembled can 
result in very different conclusions. And you can see this in a court case. The evidence is available for everyone, but the prosecution, the defence shape that evidence in very different ways for different mm. purposes. And that's one of the reasons why historical method is important. So we don't worry about trying to convince people of things or writing history with the purpose of something else. We write it simply to work out what the evidence shows us. It's interesting too, Paul, our impotence in this, because, again, I feel very naive uh, in all of this, because I don't want to get too dark, but it's this idea that you live in a free and democratic society and that there's a bedrock of values and that uh, uh, the search for truth is a big deal and that you have these countervailing institutions, the free press, the courts, competing government departments, uh, academics, the university system, and all this interplays and critiques itself, and in a Popperian way, um, we get closer and closer to the truth and, 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 and closer and closer to understanding each other, and we can have our disagreements and live peacefully. But this is an example of a government department. Well, more than a government department, it's actually a commission. So it's independent of government, it's set up by government, it's funded by government, it's a commissioner, he just can't be sacked. It's not subject to the sway of the minister, they're independent. But they have written a report designed to shape our future. That's its purpose. It has the object of constitutional reform, and of bringing two races together. And in, to achieve that end, it constructs a history. There's no other word, there's no other way of looking at it. It's, it's a constructed history. It, Even though we're living in this liberal democracy, they are immune to criticism. Because, and again, I, don't know whether I'm asking you to agree with this. It's just occurring to me when I why I'm incensed. They are immune to criticism because even 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you'd expect the media to seize upon this and say, this is amazing. We have one of New Zealand's most distinguished historians who is actually writing in his area of specialist expertise with a devastating critique of a Human Rights Commission report, which if it was on something arcane would be devastating enough, but this is on something that is leading to, quote, constitutional reform and truth and reconciliation and not a peep. So this idea of the criticism, open debate, it's not happening, is it? It's very difficult to happen. Um, yeah, there's that old newspaper editor saying, if it bleeds, it leads. In other words, yes. um, if, if you've got a, a story that's confrontational or dramatic, um, particularly nowadays increasingly a visually dramatic story, uh, that's that's going to be far more important than someone writing an historical analysis of a 
government commission's report on something. Uh, I, I think this would be in the too hard basket in terms of selling the story to the mainstream media. And look, that's fair enough. They've got a business to run. They've got to try to make a profit. Um, but the the issue about the truth, I think, is important. I mean, there are there are people and a number of academics, for example, who don't believe in the idea of an absolute truth. They think that well, yeah. it's relative. What what they use this phrase, your truth or my truth, yes. um, and they say there's no absolute truth, only individual truth. Now that's obviously contradictory because they say that statement is true. <laughs> well, it can't be because it's they you know the, their own relativity denies their own claim of truth. But putting that aside. Um, it can be a scapegoat approach to evidence. Um, and again, go back to the court case. You know, the, the evidence can show very clearly the DNA, the fingerprints, everything else that you know Johnny killed such and such. Um, now, imagine if, if the defendant turned around and said, well, that's, that's your truth. That, that's a silly thing to say. The evidence is the truth in this case, unless there's countervailing evidence, unless there's material that says, well, this is wrong. And look, I, I've contacted the Human Rights Commission several times to say, this is, you know, as I was doing work on this, saying, this is what I'm finding. This, um, they weren't open to discussing it. And I think for me, that was the most unfortunate part of the whole episode is that if they'd had an open mind, if they were committed to evidence, if they committed to the truth, they would have said, well, look, yes, maybe we um, we should have reviewed this, or maybe we can do a correction or whatever. But no, there's no appetite for that there. And that convinces me that their, their motives might be other than simply getting the history right. And as you pointed out, um, this is this is history that's been assembled by the commission for a particular end. And that's a risk for historians because you start shaping everything you come across in the context of what that end is. Mm. And so the evidence is, is, in a sense, dominated by your goal. So if, if and you, you might see this, um, you're probably not familiar with it, but some people might be if you've had an argument with your spouse. And you, know, you might say, well, you did this. And the, and the spouse might say, well, well you did this. And you know, people bring up events from the past. Now, in those moments of argument, people tend to bring up events which support their side of the argument. And it's not necessarily a very balanced representation. If you've ever talked to someone who's been divorced recently, they will tell yes. you all the faults with their partner, their, yes. ex, their ex rather. Who and they how, love. Exactly. Um, and they, they, but it's not going to be a balanced account of the relationship. And if you go to the other part, partner, they'll, they'll have their view, which will be almost completely the opposite. Again, it's not balanced. So the historian should try to find out what is the evidence and assemble an assessment based on that. What we've got here with the Human Rights Commission is they're saying, well, this is our goal. This is our objective. We will shape the evidence and only use the evidence that fits that. And as I say, if you if you look at the sources that were used for this Maranga Mai report, not only are they, are they very few sources used, um, I would imagine if I'd written a report like that, the the number of sources would be in the, in the range of perhaps 20, 50, 80 times as many sources. That's how deficient it is. So not only are the sources deficient, but the types of sources they used are very narrow. Some of them are of marginal value historically. They tend to be secondary sources rather than primary evidence. And so on all these bases, you know, these deficiencies come through, but it works for the commission because they have a particular end in mind. The other terrible thing about this is, as I'm reading the report, 
that the Human Rights Commission has published. And it's in this wonderfully protected circle because it's got its methodology, method report. I like it that you didn't use the overblown word methodology in your paper. You used <laughs> the word correct word method. But they say here, this report conveys the hard truth about how Maori have experienced colonization, racism, and white supremacy in Aotearoa. It is not what most New Zealanders understand or necessarily believe as the denial of racism in Aotearoa is a long-standing legacy that many governments and settler society over successive generations have refused to accept. So the interesting thing about this is while the commission wouldn't want to debate you, they can dismiss you because wouldn't they think of you not you individually as a racist, but as part of a racist sort of superstructure. Well, it was, I was tempted actually to access all the emails through the Official Information Act request exchanged among members of the Commission, and I thought, well, no, that's, that's a headache I don't need. Um, I read enough bad things about me without adding to the pile. Yeah. Um, but but in, the, in the extract you just read out, think of some of the language there. Um, they talk about the hard truth. Well, that's a very anti-academic term, and it's actually yes. it's questionable as opposed to what soft truth, as opposed to what I mean. This is this is a, an amateur term, hard truth. Um, the idea that their their work is presented as being absolutely true is itself a sign of a lack of awareness of what history is about. I don't think any historian worth their salt would say my work is absolutely yeah. true. Then they talk about. Um, the experiences that Māori have had, all 800,000 of them. I mean, this is a, a gross generalisation. It is true that there have been some some truly horrific things carried out by the Crown. There's no question about that. And it is true that, that racism has been a curse in this country. Um, but if you want to address that, address it fairly. And this is one of the, the biggest dangers of this report, because those of us who are concerned about racism. And as I say, the, the state has exercised racism in numerous ways over the, almost two centuries now. If you're genuinely concerned about countering it, you have to start with the truth. It's like any problem that you have. You can't fudge it or exaggerate something. So if, if you want to sort out your relationship with someone, you don't start by having just a very biased view of things. You try to understand what what their view is. You try to get to the truth of the matter and build any reconciliation on truth. This is doing the opposite. This is fabricating the past. And if you fabricate it, even for what you think are good motives, it's still fabricated. You're still poisoning the well. And the idea that you can somehow get a, a good outcome from that is, is, I think, a bit naive. And it's, it's a bit dangerous too, because you end up poisoning the well further if it doesn't work. And it's, it's a race to the bottom. It's critical theory writ large in practice, isn't it? It's another aspect of this, and I, I didn't address this deliberately because I just wanted to focus on, as I say, on the evidence and what was absolutely wrong with it. Um, and, of course, the ideology is, is very clear, and this is one of the things that historians try to look out for is, is bias. 
Um, you can have the truth in the sense of this evidence and that evidence, but the way you arrange it can be to fortify a bias, and that certainly happens here. And you can see that there's elements of critical race theory running all the way through this. Um, now, even that is acceptable if you acknowledge it, and you, yes. you. But also, it's a theory. So, if you take critical race theory, one of the obligations for people who use any theory as a lens through which to view the past is to explain what that theory is, be open about it, but also explain its deficiency. So you get a, a balanced view of the theory. You don't just sneak it in and, and presume it to be true and don't allow questioning. That's 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 unethical. No matter what theory you use, you have to say, this is the, the way we're interpreting it through this lens. But by the way, these are some critiques of that theory. These are other ways of looking at it. And give people a sense of balance. Give them an opportunity to understand the topic from different perspectives. This doesn't do that. This, this Maranga Mai report very much says this is the, the approach we have. It relies on generalizations, bad history, bias, misinterpretation, deficiency of evidence. And of course, what, it's going to come what out. What must it be like? Paul, final question. To be a student of Paul Moon and you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and you head off with your degree and you get a job working for the Human Rights Commission as an analyst and you're beavering away there <laughs> and you say to your manager, oh, hang on. I think this is wrong. You couldn't do it, could you? Um, well, I, and one of the things about our students, of course, is we we deliberately don't tell them what they should believe. Um, no, and but they we're can, very clear about they, that. They, 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 hopefully, the point of it is that they can think critically. Exactly, and we have students who have a whole range of views. And, yes. and some people might think, well, they shouldn't. But no, absolutely, they should. That's the absolutely. whole point. But if you think critically about this report and you have a question about it, it, would, it wouldn't be allowed, given what we see of this commission. And I think that, that was headed off in advance. And this is one of the things that maybe some journalists in the future may look into is who was chosen to write it? How were they chosen? What are their credentials? What's their expertise in this area? I, I, I can't say too much, but I, I, I do know that the Human Rights Commission. Um, how do I put it? I do know that the the process was unusual. Let's call it that. And I do know that the credentials of at least one of the people who was involved in this are not ideal at all. You wouldn't have them write a report like this if, if you knew what their their credentials were. But um. The commission, I think, obviously chose these people. It, it and look, they can wash their hands of it. They can say, look, we we got experts in it. They wrote the reports, not for us to criticise it. But it is up to you, firstly, to make sure you have the right people producing this material. And crucially, if you're using any funds at all, taxpayer funds to pay for it. But even if it's a private enterprise, you do the right thing. You get a quality control. You peer review it, and you make it transparent. You know, I'm I'm. My review is open. It's it's available to the public. You can read it. You can tear it apart. You can mock it. You can do whatever you want. I'm quite happy for people to do that. Um, but I don't hide. I don't conceal my name or or hide sources or um, pretend it was peer reviewed when it wasn't, and so on. Um, in actual fact, I had my report peer reviewed, um, and I'm prepared to stand by it. This is the difference. And I think, if, particularly if it's a state institution, the obligation falls on them to say. 
these are the people who wrote it. This is the peer review process. Here's the report. And I know they can't do all that because I know from what I've been told that there is no peer review report. Mm. Well, you're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've been talking to Professor Paul Moon about a report by the Human Rights Commission uh, called Marangamai and how wrong-headed it is about our history and how it points us in a different direction to which we might think a correct understanding of our history, warts and all, would want to lead us. And also the, I would suggest, the rigidity with which the Commission is approaching its report. Paul, thank you so much for doing what you do. I can imagine you sometimes wonder, you could just go and write another book, but you took the trouble to write this report. The wonderful thing is that it's online and it's available. Mm. And the other thing is, we do have a new government. And so that does allow a bit of debt clearing, doesn't it? Um, well, that, that's again, that's a political issue I, I wouldn't get involved in simply because yeah. it, my, my concern is with veracity and the value of a report. So all the political side of it um, is, is, to me, neither here nor there. Mm. Well, fair comment. Paul, thank you for coming on our show. You're on Really Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We are blessed indeed to have uh, the quality of scholarship that we have in New Zealand universities, and they still will speak out and they will speak. Well, I'm going to use that phrase, truth to power. Maybe it's the wrong phrase because we have a humility about the truth, but we uh, still are entitled to critique, to question, and we can still do it here on Rally Check Radio, online, and we have wonderful people like Paul Moon uh, helping our understanding, but also pointing to something that's a bit deep and dark in the recesses of our government processes. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, my goodness, we've heard such a lot these last little while, these last few years, about disinformation and misinformation. And we have a thing called the, what is it, the Disinformation Project. It started out of COVID when the government was for COVID matters, the one source of truth. And um, there was research being done on people that weren't sending the truth, but it's morphed and grown and got bigger. And it's starting to look at white supremacy and racism and all the rest of it. Very hard to understand. We've been lucky because there's a wonderful substack uh, called A Halfling's View. I think I've got that right. And we have the author, and the author is none other than Judge David Harvey. Good morning, Judge. Good morning, Rodney. How are you? You're a retired judge. I am retired. Because I guess if you I, I can, a, I can, I can say these things now that I'm retired. Yes, I imagine if you were a practicing judge, you would have to keep quiet. Yes, yep. muzzled. Yeah, muzzled. Yeah. Did you find that quite tough? Yes. Very, uh, and, and and there were occasions when I pushed the boundaries. 
I think I might remember some of those now that I cast my mind back. I think you might have been in the news pushing boundaries. Yes, that's right. What happened? Oh, some of it was decision stuff and some of it was points of view. And part of it arose as a result of my involvement with teaching internet law. Mm. And there was was stuff going around about the internet uh, at the time and still is that was completely wrong and needed to be corrected. So I sort of stepped out of role and um, and tried to um, correct it. <laughs> so you were teaching law yes, and teaching internet law, which yes. is a new thing. Yeah. And were you doing that while a judge? Yes. Yeah, I, I do the, um, the judicial work during the day, and then I teach my class in the evenings, two, two evenings a week. Because that could become a complicated scenario because you you can be teaching and say things that as a judge you should not, but you're doing it as a teacher. Yeah, you needed to be careful about that. Um, Did you enjoy being a judge? Oh, very absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I'd probably still be doing it if they hadn't, uh, if Parliament, your uh, f- former friends, uh, hadn't said 75 is the absolute time when acting warrants end and so on and so forth. Um, otherwise, I'd probably still be there. I, I, yes, I did enjoy it. It was it was a wonderful job. It was uh, it was challenging, um, and it allowed uh, it allowed you to do stuff that was meaningful for the mm. community. And mm. uh, and to be of service to the community, and that's very for me. That's very important. Did you find some cases distressing? Yes, sure. You must feel, but you, but you, you, you know, the the important thing is to remain objective. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, for example, I did a, a recent Substack on the Hamas uh, incursion into Israel on the 7th of October um, last year. And I'd taken some um, uh, passages from a New York Times report by uh, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist called Jeff Gittleman. Now, these were really, really brutal. Um, Now, I I read them through, and, you know, 32 years being a judge, you don't see it all, but you see an awful lot. And uh, I thought, well, if I'm going to publish this stuff, I'm going to have to put in all sorts of warnings because I don't, you know, it, it was pretty horrifying, but it didn't prompt an emotional response. Let's put it that way. From an objective mm. point of view, it was dreadful. From a subjective point of view, you just put that to one side. And um, yeah, so you learn how to deal with that sort of thing. I, yes, I, I, I have some horrible horrible cases. One case that I heard, in fact, one of the lawyers was so distressed by it that she gave up practice. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And you would often find yourself dealing with a sort of tragic sector of society. Very much so. Um, I spent um, 20, 20 years plus uh, because when I got my acting warrant, I went back to South Auckland. But for 20 years on the on the trot, I was in South Auckland. My goodness! Um, and that was, you know, <laughs> that was it was unique. Um, I was out at uh, Manukau Court 
on Thursday last for the swearing in of a, of a colleague. And um, I thought, you know, I wouldn't have wanted to sit really anywhere else. Um, it was um, it was an inspiring, inspiring, challenging, wonderful place to work. Terrific board staff, um, people of all different uh, sectors of the community uh, were seeking our services and seeking assistance. And it was, um, yeah, it was terrific. Um, and we had a terrific common room there. The judges at Manukau, um have a, a wonderful sense of humour, which you've got to have, otherwise you'd go crazy. <laughs> to play along with the modern era, and I see you, which uh, listeners can't, and I was shocked to learn you're 75, so congratulations. Uh, 77 now, Ron. My goodness. <laughs> uh, you do look a little white. You but do yeah. look, you know, everything. You, yeah. do look, you do look a little male. Oh, you mean the old white male? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. heavens. I've, yeah, I had an interesting experience with that. I was at a conference some years ago where I made some comment about something, and somebody said, oh, that's the type of thing that I'd expect from an old, white, privileged male. And I said, congratulations, you've got four discriminatory categories in the one sentence. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yep. So guilty as charged. Guilty, guilty as, charged. as charged. Nothing we can do about it. You no mitigation at all. Yes, <laughs> we can be sitting here, the grumpy two white old men, happy in our privilege. Now tell me. Why do you write a Substack? Um, uh, well, point one, I enjoy writing. Um, point two, well, I should say I have a column in the listener every fortnight as well. Mm. Um, point two, I I like long form. Point three, I like analysis. Point four, I like to try and deal with things dispassionately, objectively, and based on uh, evidential uh, uh, foundations. And um, point five, I suppose, I like to exercise my freedom of expression. Mm. I've got a point of view, and I, I want to share it. Good. Well, I enjoy I enjoy receiving it and reading Thank it. You. Now, how do we find your substack for listeners that are listening? This is Judge David Harvey, retired judge, writes beautifully, um, writes great analysis of contemporary events. He's on point. Uh, how do how would someone find your substack? DJH DCJ, six letters. Used to be David John Harvey, District Court Judge, which is which is where that comes from. Dot substack dot com. There you go. And it's titled A Halfling's View. Yeah. So they could also Google A Halfling's View. They could. Do you, you like The Hobbit? <laughs> yes. Hey, Rodney, I won Mastermind in 1981 with The Lord of the Rings. So oh, really? the answer is yes. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. If I were to zoom and switch, switch the camera around, I, you could you could see the Tolkien library, but I won't do that because it's a mess. Well, Tolkien, what a remarkable man. Who, yeah. Tolkien? Yes. Absolutely. Fabulous. And, and C.S. Lewis, and that they were yes. colleagues. Yes. And that they fed off each other so amazingly well. And they drank together at a pub called the Burden Bowl, or the Eagle and Child in Oxford, where I've been, and I've sat in this snug. So, yeah. 
Yeah. My goodness. And then their war experience, which would be? Hawkins' war experience was First World War. I yes. can't remember if Lewis, if Lewis had a war experience, but Tolkien certainly did. He was on the Somme, and he was invalided out um, with um, uh, uh, trench fever. Did you enjoy the movie? The Jackson movie? Yes. Yes, very much. Um, I, I actually was asked to um, advise on aspects of it. So, um, yes, I did enjoy it. I loved it. Mm. I thought it was fabulous. And there, there are scenes there which are lumps in the throat and tears in the eyes. Um, fabulous. Fabulously done. It is, to anyone that hasn't read the book or books or volumes, it is a treasure trove, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And now I love I love Lord of the Rings. Funnily enough, I didn't enjoy the movie. Oh. Um, but I suspect it's because I had read the book and formulated in my view how everything was. Oh, you have your own vision, sure. Yes. And and I don't know, I've always I've never found a movie. Um, unless I saw the movie first before I read the book. So Dr. Chivago, I saw the movie first and then read the book, and I've always loved the movie. But because I'd read the book and it had such an impact on me, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, that when I saw the movie, it didn't have the – I mean, it was – I look, I loved the movie and and and, the, and well done and fabulous, but to me it couldn't do justice to the book. Well, I missed things out. Yeah, uh, and, the, and the book was such in such a thoughtful thing. How far have we got from our topic? I'm going to have to bring us back to it, Judge. <laughs> You've written what I consider to be the best analysis of myths and disinformation in the Disinformation Project, and I don't want to interrupt you because you're clearly a person who can organize your thoughts and do your bullet points. And I have listeners that say, oh, you keep interrupting. And I agree with them. Walk me through what this disinformation and misinformation and this project is all about, please. Okay. Um, I've got to get myself organized first. Um, I think the starting point has got to be that, um, particularly with COVID, and perhaps a little bit before, I think perhaps even with, with the, um, the rise of, of Trump's first presidency, um, there was a focus on the message, if you like. And uh, there was a developing intolerance for any contrary message. Uh, instead of um, characterizing that as, as wrong or, or anything like that, a couple of new words came into the lexicon, misinformation uh, and disinformation. And these words were employed with devastating effect during the COVID time. Devastating. Because uh, what they were used for was for the purposes of dismissing any contrarian point of view. Uh, it doesn't matter if you were anti-vax, it doesn't matter if you were a scientist, it doesn't matter if you were an experienced epidemiologist, if you didn't conform to the party line, that was deemed to be either misinformation or even worse, disinformation. Now, misinformation they've uh, defined as being uh, an incorrect statement 
that is circulated uh, without the intention of causing harm. Uh, there's another word for it, rumor, uh, for Rodney, and it's rumor, mm. um, if you like. That's a mm. simple word, but, you know, um, these uh, Wellington bureaucrats and so on and so forth will always use more than one syllable if they possibly can. So misinformation became part of the lexicon. Disinformation is even worse. Disinformation is defined as a false statement that is circulated with the intention of causing harm or misleading people. There's another word for that. It's called a lie. Mm. Uh, Can I just uh, pause you there too? Because there seems to me to be a corollary that if you are labelling disinformation and misinformation, especially so if you're a government, then... The corollary is you have and you know the truth. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, that was the podium, the podium of truth. That's how the, the whole, that, that, that was the, the other side of it, wasn't it? Which is not something anyone rational claims in the sense that we're always open to the prospect that we could be wrong and that some of the most amazing scientific truths have been, through further understanding, found to be inadequate or incomplete or sometimes outright wrong. And so we've learnt as scientists and indeed um, as a sort of Christian thing to be humble about our knowledge and this idea that you can label disinformation and misinformation, it's an enormous usurpation of power. Mm -hmm. Well, Galileo's um, disinformation was characterised as heresy. Yes. Uh, I mean, the, the, the church was, <clears throat> the Catholic Church was the single source of truth. And um, if you disagreed, uh, you were a heretic, and there were all sorts of consequences that could be visited upon you. I mean, Galileo didn't actually get too hot, but he was deprived of his liberty for a considerable period of time. He's been Galileo has been vindicated, um, but it's 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 an example. And I think part of the problem was that not only did you have the misinformation disinformation thing that arose during COVID. But you also had uh, the Prime Minister who said in answer to a question from uh, Judith Collins that the government was the sole source of truth. Anything else she said was a grain of salt. So if it wasn't coming from the government, if it wasn't coming uh, from the podium of truth, um, be sceptical about it. Uh, in addition, as part of their messaging, uh, the government uh, set up or uh, organised with an outfit at Auckland University called Tupunaha Matatini to take over the messaging about the scientific um, information about COVID, about vaccines, and so on and so forth. Um, part of Tupunaha Matatini um, involved people like Susie Wiles, Sean Hendy, uh, Peter Gluckman, uh, respected people in their own field. Uh, also, as part of uh, Te Punaha, was the Disinformation Project. And the Disinformation Project brief, essentially, was to deal with um, 
disinformation or misinformation, rumour and lies, about uh, the contrary messaging that was coming through. Now, that's okay. That, that's, that's not a problem. Um, I don't have any difficulty with an organisation set up to say, no, this is incorrect and it is, there's no scientific basis for it or the, the analysis of it is incorrect or the, evident, the evidential foundation for it is suspect or something like that. At least it's part of the dialogue, but it isn't a shutdown. The problem is that the director of the disinformation project, Kate Hanna, had a particular approach to dealing with um, academic issues uh, and dealing with academic analysis. And she described it in a letter that she wrote to the vice chancellor of Waikato University as a neo-Marxist approach. Now, the minute that you get into that, the bells start ringing. Mm. because immediately you are dealing with a person who is approaching their topic from a critical theory point of view. And critical theory uh, is, is a, is a neo-Marxist uh, approach to things that is based upon uh, the necessity for conflict pretty much in, in every sort of situation. Now, as far as the disinformation project was concerned, the first paper that they did, which I think is still on their website, uh, was was pretty reasonable. Um, it it was on point. It was on topic. It was well researched. It was well um, footnoted. Um, not so much of a problem. It was what happened afterwards that they began to go off the rails, and they began to get involved in areas which was, in my view, beyond their brief. Uh, they started using highly emotive language. They would not provide any evidential foundation for anything that they said. So it was impossible to carry out an independent review of their sources or anything like that. Oh, says Sanjana Hatutawa, who was one of their researchers, we've been checking on Telegram for the last 24 hours. Great. Let's see it. Where is it? We've been checking on Facebook for such and such a period of time. Terrific. What proportion of total posts in Facebook uh, amounted to what you claim to be disinformation? So there was an absence of evidence. It was another of these trust us, we know what we're doing things. Mm. And uh, it that, that continued. And the problem was it, it continued and continued and went way beyond COVID and began to get into areas like trans rights, misogyny, racism, all of the isms that are going on uh, that involve uh, a conflict between the empowered on the one hand and the disempowered on the other, which is fundamental to neo-Marxist uh, thinking and to critical theory. And uh, basically, in, in my view, the disinformation project lost its way and more importantly, it lost its credibility. Now, I'm speaking um, not as, um, uh, well, I suppose I'm speaking as a critic on the one hand, but I'm also speaking from the point of view of a person and like you, I've done a PhD. And I consider that it is most important if you are coming up uh, with a point of view that you've got to be rigorous in your approach. The disinformation project is anything but, anything but rigorous. But there's even more. Recently, and I, I mean like within the last six months, there came out of the Christchurch call, you'll remember the Christchurch yes, call. Yes, indeed. Um, 
an expansion, if you like, of their terms of reference. Their terms of reference now include examining things like misogyny and transgender uh, stuff and, and all of that type of hate speech thing, if you like, uh, because they see this as a breeding ground for terrorism. Oh, really? Where's the evidence? But the other startling coincidence about that is that that comes from the Christchurch Call website and is strikingly similar to the type of information that is coming out of and the type of approach that is coming out of the Disinformation Project. Now, we know that a former uh, Prime Minister who also happened to be the chair of the Socialist Youth Organisation is heading up the call, the New Zealand's representative, or was New Zealand's representative to the Christchurch Call. It isn't surprising that she should um, be feeding into an outfit mm. like Disinformation Project, which has received a considerable amount of funding and contract work from the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Surprise, surprise. The amazing thing is, and it's extraordinarily clever, is how, well, you and I will use these terms, neo-Marxists, activists, have an extraordinary ability at propaganda, great use of words, so emotive, and can seize on fears and causes that we believe in and twist them. And so you have the terrible terrorist attack, which is then seized upon to shut down free speech yep. and to exp it, and to make a huge issue that there's white supremacy everywhere you look. Yep. You have supposedly a deathly pandemic and out of that grows this, again, this incredible need to control speech and caring for the environment. All these things, like we do want to keep people healthy. We all care about public health. We all care about the environment. We all want to stop um, terrorists. We all want to stop and and, and not live in a conflict and uh, hate-filled world. These great causes get used like a Trojan horse to bring in unbelievable controls and legislation and if you question that legislation you're labeled terrible words but you're lab <laughs> yes and so it's extremely clever is it not well well it is but it's not surprising because it's been the way that authoritarian governments have always worked yes here's another quandary for you uh, it's you're on Rally Check Radio. We'll talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to retired Judge David Half, David Harvey, who writes a Halfling's View on Substack. You mu it's a must read. If you sit in your at home and you bemoan the state of our newspapers uh, and reports, um, you need to read the Substack because here is the analysis that we all long for. It's extraordinary to me, well, it's not really, because like you, we have followed these people and studied them a little bit, not to the depth that you have, because 
I don't have that masochistic streak that would allow me to be a Manukau District Court judge for so many years. But you clearly have. But the neo-Marxists who don't believe in truth, who believe that everything is subjective and that truth is what power dictates and that those in power decide the truth. And so even, even the concept of truth to them as a social construct yep. that the powerful use, particularly rich, white, privileged men who have controlled and dictated the truth for years and years and years. And so it's a, they're even using that phrase, misinformation and disinformation and truth. Of course, misinformation and disinformation is straight out of every tin pot dictator's playbook to deal with any criticism of their lust for power. And this is what we're seeing unfold. And here we are in a liberal democracy with this totally, what's the word? There is a word like a subversive. It's it's, it's a, like a cancer. It will absolutely destroy us if we're allowed to take root and to grow. Will it not? No, oh, democracy contains the seeds of its own downfall. Yes. Um, the Germany found that in 1933. Yes. And of course, we're not allowed to use those analogies, but they're often quite apt. Why not? I can never understand that. Nor can I. History is history is a great teacher. You know, come on. Um, it, it, if you can't learn the lessons of history, you're doomed to repeat the mistakes. I mean, that, that's that's a trite saying. Yes, and the, and the labelling of one group of people as the cause of all your problems and that's unclean. Right. The use of brilliant propaganda and the rigorous enforcement of well, the, the rigorous demolition of free speech and criticism. Yeah. Chloe Swarbrick, whom I saw on um, Q&A yesterday. Um, oh, I'm pleased you brought that up. Yeah, well, um, I had to sort of take a deep breath because once you push play with Chloe, she just goes on and on and on and on and on. When confronted with an unfortunate um, uh, difficulty in her analysis, if you can call it that, um, she immediately jumps to, uh, well, that's a reductive approach. Mm. Uh, and there's always, there's always, and, and she always wants to unpack things. There's no such answer as yes or no for, for dear Chloe. But she's a classic neo Marxist, uh, uh, critical theory thinker. Well, thinker, I suppose, is, I use that word advisedly. Do you think she realizes that she is? No. Well, either she realizes that she is and is very, very clever at manipulating it, or alternatively, she's um, listened to the right to listen to certain people and read certain books and so on and so forth, and has adopted uh, an approach that she thinks is is um, politically for her advantage. Uh, I would like to think that she's she's very, very clever. She's extraordinarily clever. I watched that interview too. And I don't watch many uh, political interviews, and I don't watch much TV. But that popped up um, in my ex feed, and I thought oh, I've got to listen to this. I thought she was 
remarkably good. Oh, very articulate. Mm. Very articulate, extremely persuasive. And that if you hadn't had the inoculation against such thinking, she would be um, persuasive. Yep. But here's me having been through the COVID era, era and watched uh, how these things work out and having forced myself to wrap a wet towel around my head and study study some aspects of critical theory, you can see right through them. Mm-hmm. And you feel as though, well, I watched her and I felt that we were on an edge of a cliff with her. Mm-hmm. It's so precarious that someone aspiring to be a political leader could be so imbued with their righteousness and the rightness of themselves and the wrongness of anyone who disagrees with them, including the interviewer. Yeah, I I, I get I get your point on that. But the other thing that I think is very important is just never lose sight of it is that um, for whatever purpose uh, she says what she says, or anybody says what they say, they are entitled to express their point of view. Of course. Freedom of, freedom of expression rules. Some people have said that I'm a free, freedom of expression absolutist. I'm not. I am. <laughs> <laughs> what, you're, you're happy with the person who shouts fire in the crowd of the theatre? Of course not. <laughs> No, but okay. the so limits, the that's, limits. That's, that's the limit that I put on. Yeah. Uh, if, 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 if you're advocating, if you're advocating uh, physical harm, imminent physical harm to any person or group of people, that's that's out of bounds. But, and and here's the key thing that we lack from John Stuart Mill. It's got to be imminent. Yes, imminent. That's well. That's what Oliver Wendell Holmes said. In, in yes. Firecut. Yes, it's got to be. It's got to be. Uh, I mean, and it's a tort, really, isn't it? Mm. Um, the, the, the thing that, that that is important. This is what I've been trying to do, and I put a piece up on this on my Substack this morning. Is yes, by all means, uh, Chloe and the Disinformation Project and all of these people are perfectly entitled to put their point of view. I am offering you the analytical tools that you need to critically examine what they are saying and work out for yourself whether or not what they're saying is valid, good, true, acceptable, something that you should follow, something you need to follow up. That's that's what I see as one of the functions of my substack, is to assist people in analysing these interesting points of view, shall we say. Yes. But there's a fascinating thought here, isn't it? And it's the limits of reason and the extent to which we can be tolerant. And the limits of reason I I wonder about is once Hitler got going, you could be writing on the equivalent of a substack while you still could, but you'd be peeing into the Norwester. 
Well, in a, in a liberal democracy, as long as it lasts, and there's another comment that Oliver Wendell Holmes made, and that is that um, freedom of expression is freedom for the thought we hate. Yes, I agree. Um, and, you know, the question is... That's what, the only time it counts. Yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah. It, 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 freedom of speech is nothing if you agree with it. Freedom no, of speech is easy critical to when you disagree with it. Yes. Um, because that's when the debate starts. Yes. I, I, I certainly have some concerns for the future of a liberal democracy like the United States, when out of the millions, the hundreds of millions of people that are in that country, who <laughs> have they got for president? Some old guy who gets his names mixed up and stumbles all over the place, or some other idiot who spends most of his life under a sun lamp uh, and, and tells lies. Really? Is that the best they can do? And do we really want to have either of those guys with their finger on the button? No, thank you. That's a democracy that is in trouble. But as Benjamin Franklin said, you've got a republic. See if you can keep it. Absolutely. But there's this interesting thing, which is the paradox of tolerance. You'll be familiar with that, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Whereby you can all be tolerant, but there gets to the point where you can't be tolerant of intolerance. And I think the West is being confronted with that within, particularly when we've had um, this. I got to, I got to phrase this cautiously, but it's this: <laughs> there, there are, it's not like me. Well, um, radical Islam. There's a degree to which you cannot allow radical Islam to take root and grow because it's antithetical to the values of a liberal democracy. And I'd always had a view that the values of a liberal democracy would always win out because I found them agreeable. It's where my reason led me. It's where our shared Judeo-Christian Western view takes us. But now I'm not so sure. It's the same when we elevate uh, tribal Maori spiritual beliefs and put them into our schools. And I'm looking at that and thinking, these views are not allowed to be criticised. You're not allowed to criticise radical Islamic faith. You're not allowed to criticise uh, a Maori worldview. And therefore, that why should I tolerate or be tolerant of a set of views that are intolerant? Okay. If I can use Chloe's word, let me unpack that. Please. Um... You're not allowed to criticize uh, radical Islam, okay? The answer to your criticism of radical Islam, the minute that you open your mouth and start talking about it is, oh, but that's Islamophobic. Mm -hmm. 
Or alternatively, if you start to say, let's let's have a look at, at Te Ao Maui and examine whether or not this is, in fact, the way that we want to go, the answer that you get is, oh, that's racist. Agreed. Would you agree? Yes. Okay. Those two words are what we call veto words. Yes. Okay. They shut down the discussion immediately. Uh, you can't you can't carry on unless you're prepared to navigate your way around the Islamophobia or racism or the anti-trans or whatever. Um, you you can't carry on because they, those words will be used to shut the discussion down. They're cancel words. And it's all part of the cancel culture. It's all part of the neo-Marxist approach, the critical theory approach. It all resolved back to that. And Marcuse in 1964. Correct. But it's not just words, is it? I could take being called a racist. I could take being called Islamophobia. But what is hard to take is losing your job. Oh, yeah. Losing your social standing, having your business destroyed, that's happening now. Yep. It's not that the intolerant are just calling us names. They're actually destroying us mm -hmm. economically and socially and personally. Yeah, I had a, I had a bit of a debate last week about um, a, a sort of associated issue within the context of freedom of expression, and um, I said that my view was that freedom of conscience uh, preceded freedom of expression. Yes, my uh, interlocutor, if I can put it that way, suggested that I had it around the wrong way and that freedom of expression came first and freedom of conscience followed that. The problem that you have, and I, I, um, I came into contact with this um, when I was doing my PhD studies, because what I was looking at was um, law and technology, and I was looking at the impact of the printing press upon the development of law. And one of the things that, and, and the period of time that I was looking at it was from 1475 through to 1642. And that was the time of the English Revolution. That would have been wonderful because the parallel to the internet. Oh, yeah. It's, there, there's a lot to it. But what, what I found there was the way in which, uh, and they didn't have <laughs> free speech or anything mm. like that, but what they did focus on. And what, what the English uh, Revolution, one of the things that was, was underpinned the English Revolution um, and the Civil War in 1642 and following, was all about freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, freedom of belief, what you believe in. And my view is that, that and, and part of that involved the printing press and the type of stuff that you could put out and the way in which... Um, the printing press was censored and um, the way in which the Stuarts in particular tried to control um, the, the, the printing press. But, but that, that's a story for another time. But it all had to do with freedom of conscience and exactly the same things that you've described, people losing their jobs and, and, and all of the rest of it, happened to um, uh, Catholic recusants in Elizabethan England. Um, you know, if you didn't if you didn't conform to the party line, to the Protestant line, 
you were in trouble. And the way that they did it, and it was rather cunning, uh, was that um, the queen was the head of the church, or the king, Henry VIII, was the head of the church. Um, the minute you start um, putting forward some kind of alternative approach to religious doctrine, you are uh, criticising the monarch. Hey, that's treason. Mm. <laughs> it was fairly sudden. Um, there was Hilary Mantel's second book about Thomas Cromwell was called Bring Up the Bodies. And that was because when a person was accused of treason, just accused of treason, they were deemed to be legally dead. Wow. So bring up the bodies means, well, you know, they're just a body. You know, all we need to do is t take their head off or disembowel them. Or do but something. the parallel to present day is perfect. Oh, yeah. You only have to be accused of being a racist. Yep. And you're dead. You're out. You're in trouble. Um, It makes for, it must make for workplaces and social settings problematic and a lot less fun. Oh, yeah. If you were a judge now, you would be checking yourself in the common room, unless you had trusted colleagues, which you probably did. But in any social setting, it's not just a hot mic anymore. It's not just an interview. It could be a passing comment in an elevator that sees you accused and destroyed without your day in court. Oh, absolutely. Throwaway lines is, um, is deadly. And, and, you know, there are occasions when, when judges, even in open court, may um, yes, uh, allow, themselves, allow themselves a throwaway line. And, mm. oh, um, yeah. And of course, it's so stultifying, isn't it, that you can't sit there and I, when I avoid, you know, common rooms and staff rooms and workplaces, they've always been such fun, pubs, they've always been such fun because of the banter. Yeah. And the banter is thoughtless in a way. Things are out of your mouth before you've thought through. You're not sitting there and thinking, who could hear this and take offence? You know, the Chloe Swarbrooks who are so mm -hmm. easily offended. Um, they, you, so you find yourself, and this is what I've loved actually about this radio show, it's the first time for years I feel just able to talk. Yep. Well, I <laughs> Just to give you an example, a relative of ours was over in the weekend and um, he said, do you remember Billy T. James? Oh, my goodness, yes. And um, we said, yeah, <laughs> of course, um, along with the, you know, the 1980s, which were a good time, despite what Alan Park says. Yes. Um, and uh, he said, oh, I've just found this on YouTube. Do you mind if we have a look at that? And, and I said to my wife after he got, I said, do you think we could ever see anything like that on television today? She said, not a chance. Not a chance. And yet it was hilarious. Yes. I mean, there were so many sacred cows that he took a, sh a shot Well, at. that's what a comedian's role was. Of course it is. You know, to take the mickey out of those in power. Yeah. Take the mickey about the shibboleths and beliefs that people have.
and to make us laugh at ourselves. And he didn't have, in his comedy, I didn't know the guy, but in his comedy, there wasn't a hint of malice. No, no, it wasn't. Tell me. It wasn't hateful. Tell me. I feel when I look at um, the persecution you could get for stepping out of line, for having wrong think and wrong speak, we're at the stage now where you can lose your business, you can lose your job, you can lose your social standing. I don't want to be alarmist, but you're not that far away from actually chopping hands off and worse. Nope. It's a short step, isn't it? Mm-hmm. For sure. I, I, I get the sense from you, Judge. I, I should say to everyone that's barely uh, check radio, real talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to judge retired Judge David Harvey. I've got to put the retired and not to signify his senior years, but to <laughs> signify that don't worry about writing a letter off to the Minister of Justice. Nothing can happen. <laughs> or the Attorney General um, or the Prime <laughs> Minister. Uh, judge David Harvey has the honorary honorific of judge, which I like using. And it's both courteous, but also it's, well, funny, because we have a judge speaking out, speaking his mind, but he's a former judge. That's the point. Um, we're talking to Judge David Harvey. Um, I actually, in that in that run-up, I have completely lost my 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 thread but i wondered about oh that. i know what it was i know what it was right. i was going to say you strike me as a person very much like me which is probably why we're getting on so well but because you know i'm old white male privileged but like me i suspect you have a great love of the law Oh, yes, absolutely. And a great respect for the law is what allows a society to jog along, to prosper and to be free. The rule of law, absolutely critical. And that you have this real justice in it for uh, that's blind and respects the most powerless without fear or favour and holds the powerful to account. That's the wonderful thing of the law. It's so beautiful. It is so magnificent. The fact that it's conservative and Mm. its interpretation and application makes it wonderful. And we've had the greatest minds apply themselves to tricky things and draw on deep principles to apply the law in new and novel ways, which prove durable. You must be horrified at the state of our legislation. Um... By which I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure. The use of the the well, the over legislation of society. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, too many. And rules. second of no. all, legislation being used 
for a social purpose, not to allow people to prosper and to be free, but to a social end and to separate us, to divide us, all these different things that are occurring within our law. Well, um, so yeah, much... I, can, I can give you an example yes, of, please. Of, of that. Um, and it's happening right now, and the Select Committee is sitting on it on Thursday. The Fair Digital News Bargaining Bill, which uh, basically sets up a compelled bargaining process. Now, how come you? How, how, how can you have a bargain that is compelled? I mean, it, it, it's it's an oxymoron. But anyway, it is a compelled bargaining process, so that news media will get payments from Google, Facebook, uh, Instagram, and and the big platforms for using uh, their content. Uh, on on their search programs and so on and so forth. Now, in some respects, um, this is the successor to the um, um, uh, journalism uh, handout that the previous government did, yes. the, the journalism uh, fund that the previous government had that, that basically subsidised uh, news media to the tune of about $105 million. Now, and, and subject to certain conditions, of course, that they had to fulfil before they got, got the money. Now, what is happening is that the PIJF is coming to an end, uh, or has come to an end. This is another subsidy scheme mm. for news media, only instead of the government subsidising it, they're setting up the process whereby platforms subsidise the news media. Now, sorry, I'm an economic Darwinist. If they can't survive, they don't deserve to survive. We do need the news media, but really what they should do is that they should start uh, getting on board as far as the digital paradigm is concerned rather than uh, asking the people who are on board with the digital paradigm to prop them up. It's a bit like asking the Ford Motor Company in its early form to subsidise blacksmiths. Yep, exactly. There's been a transformation occur, and here's the fascinating thing. I have better access to news than I've ever had in my entire life. Mm -hmm. It's no longer the morning newspaper, morning report, and midday news and TV One News at night. Yep. What it is is reading, literally from the horse's mouth, yep. Judge David Harvey's thoughts. I can I can follow great journalists who are making a bomb, uh, writing freely on X, yep. um, and of course they are totally. And here's a seventy-seven-year-old judge who's studied the printing press, studied the internet, and who's writing great articles that you'd never see in the mainstream media. Yeah, and um, the thing the thing about it, though, Rodney, is this. They've got this, this compelled bargaining process. They're going to set up another bureaucracy to administer it. They don't need it because there's a, there's a piece of legislation called the Copyright Act 1993, yes. and that provides a system of licensing whereby the media could license their content for use by Google, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, for a fee. Come on, it's already there. Mm. Uh, why do we need 
yet another bureaucracy. Well, of course, it was introduced by the Labour government. So, you know, are, are we surprised? Of course not. Um, Tell me, is the disinformation project now dead? No. No, it's not, um, in the sense that their website is still up. Their last uh, paper that was published, um, I think, was around about October of last year. Um, I think they're still they're still going, and I have some queries, some questions that I have asked about the funding that the disinformation project has been receiving, the future funding that they might be receiving. Uh, I would like to think that uh, the present government uh, will basically cut them loose. And if they want to continue, then they can get their funding from private organisations um, you know, who, who uh, subscribe to their particular uh, point of view. But I really don't think they should be getting any government funding at all, if indeed they're getting any at the moment. It's tough to be a government right now because you have these what would you call it, these university academics who write as supposedly haughty, unbiased arbiters of what's right and good and what's true and false everywhere you look. And we have a media who don't seem to believe in news and reporting both sides repeating this academia in some sort of circle, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And you and I have long given up following the legacy media other than for a giggle and entertainment and fodder for our columns. But you feel that Mr. Luxon and the government have to be mindful of the media. And that is actually a huge anchor around their neck. Not in the sense that the media are holding them to account and being providing a critique, but rather the media has got an ideological view to which the government doesn't fit. Well, I think that you're really scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of your um, <coughs> journalistic ability. If the best you can do is to compare speeches that were made at Waiting in 2023 and 2024 <laughs> to see if there are any common paragraphs, I mean, come on. And the, making a story out of it. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, it just shows that you can make a story out of a pig's ear. But um, the, way that I, the way that I see it, being as favourable as I can to Mr. Luxon, is that at least he's staying on message. That's right. Yeah. And, I mean, um Something which, which is, as a CEO, he wants to do. And it's like going to church on a Sunday. It bears yep. repeating. Yep. Tell me, uh, off topic, but we both watched it. You've written on Hamas. Yes. What did you make of Chloe Swarbrooks? This is why I watched it. What did you make of her defence of her chanting, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Naive. <laughs> Naive. And furthermore, I don't think Jack Tame asked the question which really needed to be asked. 
which is, and if Palestine is free and does occupy what uh, the, the land that Israel currently occupies, what happens to its inhabitants? That's the question. That's what it really means. It, not, it doesn't just mean Palestine must be free. It means get rid of the Jews. Yeah. And it's anti-Semitic. It is grossly anti-Semitic. And to, for, the, for the folks who were critical of, of Chloe to say that we were offended and so on and so forth would be, in my view, dramatically understating the case. It is hate speech. I had John Minto on the show, which was uh, very good. It would have been interesting. <laughs> it was very interesting, and I got a lot of pushback because I'm 100% stand with Israel. And I had John Minto on, and he was great. He he had his point of view, and he presented it well. Interestingly, his view was you just have Palestine, and because you have democracy and you impose a liberal democracy, everyone gets to vote, and everyone's happy, and they all jog along happily together. And I was listening to this, thinking, does he not listen to what the Palestinian leadership say, to what everyday Palestinians say, and to what they've done. Yeah. And what their masters in Iran say as well. Because this this isn't a little jog along. I mean, from the river to the sea, Palestine being free is absolutely the total destruction of the Jewish people in Israel. Yep. And the destruction of the Israeli state. Yes. Which was established in 1948 by a United Nations vote, who now doesn't seem to be too interested in, in, in their creation. So Chloe admitted to being told that this was offensive. And as you say, that's like saying, oh, you called me a man when I'm actually a, now a woman, right? That's what you think of as being offensive, mm. which is pretty lighthearted relative to the weighty matters at stake here. And then she says, yes, I told me, she has been through some process with the Human Rights Commission where they've pulled her up for, mm -hmm. quote, hate speech. She didn't blink an eye. No. That's not naive. Because if you were naive, oh, I didn't realise. I won't say that again. She doubled down. You got me going now, David. <laughs> she doubled down and said we need to lean into this to make people feel uncomfortable. Did she not? Yeah, well, um, anti-Semitism has been with us for over 2,000 years, so I don't suppose we should be too surprised. I guess I am. I'd, you know, I, I, I had hoped after 1946 and with the formation of Israel in 1948 that we got past that. But we haven't. It is clear that for some reason or another, the world has not got past that. And I think that's a crying shame. And, and you know, people who, who, who say, oh, you know, we'd rather not talk about the Holocaust. No, you must talk about the Holocaust because that way you can realise just exactly where this is going to lead in its ultimate destination. Um, and that there is something that can readily be rotten in our own hearts. Yep. And that good people can do terrible things. Yep. 
and that we have a set of states around Israel dedicated to its utter destruction and extermination. Yes. yes. These aren't these aren't debatable points. No. <laughs> it's, you know, but it's the power of our mind to have our theory mm. and to make our world fit to the theory. Yeah. And so the idea that a Chloe has, I've come to conclude, is that the Western way, the white man's way, is all wrong. Mm. Rich countries are bad and have impoverished poor countries. Israel is rich, and funnily enough, they think it's white. Um, because it's rich, it must be. And it's propped up by the great Satan, America, and therefore it must be wrong. And then we have, in their narrative, indigenous people. I mean, it's all crazy, right? Yep. The Palestinians. And then they're somehow... Um, they're somehow trapped in a prison. And that becomes the entire story. And what well, you, you you and then they use the word genocide. Israel's committing a genocide. I have no idea what it means. To totally destroy the use of the word. Yep. Cheap enough. It, to base the currency of the word. That's what they're doing. Yes. Yes. And, of course, debasing that currency means you can't actually use it when it's actually happening. No. You can't, you know, genocides are an everyday thing now. We had genocide here in New Zealand, apparently. Um, and it's like racism. You and I have read a little bit of history, and we know what racism looks like and is. It's not this little bit of offence in the street business, is it? And, of course, in debasing the uses of these words, they also ameliorate things like the Holocaust, the Jim Crow laws, the bad things that have happened in New Zealand. It sort of just gets yep. muddied. Yep. Tell me, uh, Judge... David Harvey, what do you write in the list every fortnight? I have a little column called Law and Society. Mm -hmm. um, 600 words, not a lot you can do with that. Um, I've uh, written about free strikes. I wrote about the wealth tax. Um, <laughs> that was fun. Yes. <laughs> they, they, that, that prompted a whole lot of um, responses. I thought the best one... Uh, that I read that they actually published was, aren't we pleased that uh, David Harvey is a retired district court? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can clearly take the criticism. <laughs> I thought that, I thought that was brilliant. I, I really thought that was very good. <laughs> so but while I was... They obviously um, haven't read my work. <laughs> I was... Um, while I was listening to you, I realised that I've been doing you a disservice because I should be calling you Judge Dr. David Harvey because you say you have a PhD. I don't know whether I'd put the doctor first or the judge first. Um, oh, the doctor thing you don't need to worry about. Right? Well, and I should also correct up some misinformation because I have not got a PhD. I thought you did. I know. 
you I could see why you'd be think that. No. <laughs> no, I, I'm uneducated, really. No, I thought I don't know where I got that from. But yeah. for but years and years and years, I've, I've I've been misinformed. Yeah, been misinformed and spreading oh. it. <laughs> I've actually spread. I don't know that Rodney Hyde comes up in conversation. No, now, well, apart from apart from their suppression Hyde, but <laughs> <laughs> and here you are, here you are um, <clears throat> on 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 uh, Reality Check Radio. Elevating me to this esteemed uh, place. No, and and I have not got a PhD, so um, I felt I uh, the need. I didn't want to correct you at the time, but I didn't want to um, take the honour that I do not deserve. Judge David Harvey, it has been an absolute pleasure. I love your Substack. I'm afraid I didn't know you. Wrote for the listener. I have to say, I didn't know the listener still existed. <laughs> <laughs> the last listener I read had Tom Scott in it, which was popular. Oh, like dear. <laughs> um, and um, so thank you for coming on. Thank you for. I would love to think, Judge, that you would come on again next time you write something in Substack and share with us because it's wonderful. You have a great depth and breadth of views. And I know our listeners would be enjoy you very much indeed. Well, thank you very much, Rodney. I, I, I intend to try and keep a piece coming out on Substack each week. So, Good on you. Yeah. There we have it. You're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've been talking to retired Judge David Harvey. What a wonderful man. What a wonderful sense of humour. We don't have it. We've lost it. We've got to get it back. Sense of humour is everything. It's along with freedom of expression and the ability to be wrong. We've got to allow ourselves to be wrong and in error. And also that we should be able to talk freely without having to check ourselves. It was so wonderful to talk to him in a way that we could talk just freely, like we always can, on Rally Check Radio. Thank you for listening. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. I watched on YouTube last night the Chloe Swarbrook interview with Jack Tame. Oh my goodness, she's good. She is really good. She's Jacinda Ardern good, but not in a good way, if you know what I mean. So persuasive, so convincing, so open, so honest, not like any other politician. And she can sell that. And she's a politician's politician. She's that good. She's that good at being a politician, she presents herself as not one. <laughs> it's a paradox, right? Jacinda Ardern did the same. New, fresh, amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And Jack Tame asked some tough questions, I thought, but didn't push hard and didn't go places that we would go to Chloe Swarbrick, Dana us with her presence for an interview. But I was so interested in her, and I thought, my goodness, she could really succeed in politics like Jacinda Ardern succeeded because of this persuasive power. And a lot of the persuasive power, too, comes from this self-belief, just a sense of rightness this moral uprightness 
that they present, that they're good and kind and they are true and they deserve to lead us all. Anyway, I thought I must find out more about um, Chloe Swarbrook because she's clearly a political force to be reckoned with. So I looked her up on Wikipedia. I was just surprised to discover how young she is, but that's a good thing. But it said in her Wikipedia page, and I don't quite know, I don't feel good about this, and i got to do a bit of careful dancing around it, but it said that she, in her Wikipedia page, she sees a psychologist weekly and is on antidepressants. And I clicked on the link, and the link is to an interview in 2019, so some time ago. But it has her saying this, quote, I'm in a really privileged position where I'm able to go to a psychologist on a weekly basis. I have been open about the fact that I have a history of anxiety and depression. Anybody who has that will know, like it's not a linear process and like bang, it's gone. I'm on antidepressants. I try and make space to exercise. And during the break I read, which is really nice because I read fiction. Now, I don't know. Does suffering, anxiety, and depression rule you out from politics? No. Does seeing a psychologist on a weekly basis rule you out from being in politics? Nope. Indeed. Winston Churchill, that great political leader, suffered terrible depression. What do you call it? The black dog. Oh, wouldn't rule him out. But what is going on? Because there seems to be a lot of it going on in politics. It's called mental health. I don't quite understand that because I can sort of understand physical health, but mental health I don't quite get because it's what's going on in your head. Like it's not a physical thing. Obviously it's a physical thing in the sense that it's neurons firing, but you know what I mean? It's not like, oh, you've got cancer or your heart's, uh, you yeah, had a heart attack. It's a physical thing that you can see, but mental health is not something you can see. But we've had this Minister of Justice who unbelievably crashed her car late at night and, I don't know, ran away from the police. There's differing views about that. Was she drinking? I think so. And she said she wasn't well, mentally. Well, clearly not. We've had Golraz Gamaram, 
shoplifting. I would have thought it was devastating for a green to be caught in a high-end luxury boutique looking for clothes. I would have thought that was not something one should do. But there you have it. She was. She wasn't shopping. She was stealing. And it wasn't that she forgot to pay. No, she stole. She's admitted it. And not just once. She says she doesn't want to justify it, but wants to explain it because mentally she isn't well. Is this an epidemic of unwellness in our parliament? And it's not just females. It's just it's not just Labour and Green MPs because we had Todd Muller of the National Party who rose to the top and was leader and then cited that he wasn't mentally well or fit to be leader and it got to him. Well, I've got a whole lot of questions around this and I don't, I know this is awkward because we all know people who have suffered terribly from depression and schizophrenia and other things. And it's very hard for those who haven't suffered these calamities to appreciate it, obviously. But isn't there a thing where you sort of say at an individual responsibility level, you say, should I be in politics? Like, politics obviously isn't for the faint-hearted, isn't for the fragile. It's a tough business. And I guess that means that fragile, faint-hearted people can't represent us. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Um, you can't fold with a bit of criticism or a bit of abuse or someone taking the mickey. I mean, that's what we do to politicians. And so the fragile and the faint-hearted sort of for their own sake, don't put themselves forward. But here we have these people putting themselves forward as leaders. Actually, Jacinda Ardern said she was very anxious or something before she became leader and wouldn't put herself forward as leader, but did. I don't get it. Now, I could understand it in a way if you went and said, look, I'm a bit fragile and things are tough, but I'm not about to tell everyone else what to do. It's when you have politicians who go out of their way to tell you how to live, tell you what you can do, what you can think, what your kids get taught, 
and you disagree with much of it because you say to yourself, if you're going to be teaching my kids that my 10-year-old could really be a boy, not a girl, and she needs to choose, that's not good for her mental health. If you're going to be teach, telling me to do that, A, you should never do that to me or to anyone in a free society. But if you're going to do that, you're not a great exemplar of the lifestyle, of the behavior, of the thinking. Because you yourself are telling us you suffer from depression and anxiety. I look at what how we teach kids at school. To me, it's a recipe for anxiety and depression. Confusion over everything. Self-flagellation over New Zealand and the state of the future. We're all doomed because of the climate. We're all bad because we're white. We stole from another race everything that we have. You're a bad person because you're white, literally. And again, Winston Churchill was depressed. So I don't think they should be ruled out of Parliament. But how is it that they don't examine whether they should be in Parliament? How is it they're so righteous and damning of us? When I say us, I'm meaning us, the artlessness. Oh, we're not going to take that vex. We don't believe in masks. We don't believe in lockdown. You're not going to do this to us. And we work very hard to be healthy and to look after ourselves and to be in sound mind. And we're not running around telling everyone else what to do. But I don't know. Is someone anxious, depressed, on antidepressants, and maybe not now, and maybe not seeing a psychologist weekly, but was, I don't want to be told what to do by that person because I'd be saying, here, <coughs> heal yourself. Or have I got that wrong? I just had a cough. I apologize. What do you think? Do you think it matters that we have politicians who, by their own admission, and it's seen as a good thing, say they're not mentally well, who then proceed to rule over us. And then while they quickly say, oh, I'm not trying to justify what I did wrong, always bring it up whenever they're caught out so they accept no individual responsibility. That's what they're saying. It wasn't me stealing those clothes from the store. It was my illness. It wasn't me getting behind the wheel of the car. It 
it was my illness. And when Clarice Warbrook says, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And she gets told by the Jewish community this is quite offensive. I imagine it was said in much stronger words than that. Should be. And pulled up before the Human Rights Commissioner, as useless as he is. And she says, no, I'm just going to lean into that discomfort for other people. Is that her talking? Or is it because, I don't know, there's something else going on? Because you feel they always leave that door open. Because there's been a failure for our politicians of late to accept responsibility for what they do and to blame something that's going on within them. And maybe the smart ones put their hand up and say, hey, I'm not very well, but I want to be leader. And they prepared their excuse for any mistake or any failure. They've signaled it well in advance. Because there's no need to be open about this. Is there? What do you think? Send me a text. 2057, email me, inbox at You're on Rarely Check Radio. It's been Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. So lovely to hear your views. Please send them in. Like I said, text 2057, email me, inbox at radio. You're on Rarely Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Ah, my favourite part of the show, mailbag, where I get your feedback. And please, 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 I can't get enough of it, and because it's so good to hear what people are thinking, what listeners are thinking, and to feel a part of you and a part of the community, please email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio, uh, send me a text, 2057. It is really important uh, for us because it's how we connect. Uh, with technology at the moment, I would very much like you to be able to just ring in and to chat. But we're not quite there yet. Hopefully one day. Hopefully, hopefully one day. Here's the uh, feedback. Good morning, Rodney. It is a pleasure listening to you. Oh, this is so nice. To your calm, thoughtful, intelligent perspective. And today's entire lineup is appealing. So I will listen throughout the day. Many thanks from Cameron in Epsom. Cameron. Yes, it's just so wonderful to hear that. Thank you so much because we're putting a lot in. People are putting a lot into this show and into this radio. Financially, effort, hard work, literally blood, sweat, tears, and money. And we love doing it. So it's not a grumble. But it's so wonderful to receive that feedback. And there's another thing about this show and this radio station. Something deep within me and maybe within you 
makes me feel it's critical and it's so important because our legacy media is failing us. That they're not having open discussion and open debate. That it's in a very narrow bandwidth of views. And that probably if we have something in common, it's that we have views that are forbidden in the legacy media. Literally. I know you can't discuss climate change and question it and the madcap policies that we're doing to pursue it. And here on Radley Check Radio, we can discuss it. So it's more important than just our show and entertainment. It's sort of like the heart of I don't want to sound overblown, but it's the heart of our democracy, just to be able to speak freely and to have somewhere where we can. And again, that's why I value your freedom. Ah, sorry, your your I value your freedom, but I value your feedback. Ah, uh, here we go. We missed you too, Rodney. Great to have you back on air. It's wonderful to be back on air. Pura, listening to Rodney this morning, read his comment about Tanafa, etc. I am Maori and Pakiha. If Tanawa are beyond his scope, where does that leave Virgin Mary? or Holy Ghost. He made a few comments then, said as a Christian he tries to accommodate difference. Oh, Rodney really needs to read more of Ranganui. Or call me for a chat. Much to ponder over Waitangi weekend, but RCR needs some brown balance, BFF included. Freedom for whom? Our shared enemies are not specific to race, but we still maintain our individual identities. As such, Maori have much still to debate. Well, I agree, in, in part, half. Of course, Mary, have got much to debate. We all do. But Mary have much to debate as individuals, not as a group, because, like, we don't have a group think or a group thought. And I don't see, well, this is controversial, these days. I don't see that we balance, if you like, different cultural or racial views. I think we have open and free debate and anyone can contribute. We don't sit there and say we've had half on this, now we need to do half on that. It's like open. But here's a controversial bit. And I'm not speaking on behalf of the radio station, I'm speaking as a host. I think there are cultures that succeed better than others. I think there are societal norms that succeed better than others, that are better for people. I think there are belief systems that are better than others and societies that hold those beliefs do better than others. I'm not a, of a view that all cultures and all ways of looking at things are the same and are equal. And so I think, if you like, 
how do we describe it? Well, Elizabeth Rata says, what is it? It's the universal versus the tribal, or I would say the individualist versus the group or the tribe, or the open society versus the closed society, or the Judeo-Christian Western view of the world versus the others without giving it a racial tinge because anyone can be born into and anyone can subscribe to these views. But I'd much rather live and will die fighting for an open society over a closed society. And I don't think the views are compatible at the level of governance. I think you can have your views, but if you put them into governance, then they denigrate and destroy what's important to living in a free and prosperous society. That's why we separated church and state. And so no one's saying putting God, that you have to query God into legislation or policy. But we're putting tanafars in lots of places, either directly or indirectly. And so that to me is the difference, if I may be so bold. It's tricky though, because even to discuss it um, is to open yourself up. But it's a very, very important discussion. And I observe that Christian societies are open and tolerant. Times they haven't been, but mostly they are. And following you and McQueen, I've been reading much about the missionaries here in New Zealand before the treaty was signed. Oh my goodness, what a wonderful story. And why did, why did Maori, without guns, without force, why did they become Christians? way back then and stop fighting. Oh, I didn't mean to go that deep in mailbag. Rodney Hyde, is it true is it true that public journalism fund is locked in till twenty twenty five? I imagine it is locked in for some time. So we can expect the left-wing dribble to continue. Cheers, Rachel. Yes, indeed, it's going to continue. The left-wing dribble, the legacy media is not going to change, I think, anytime soon. Although I have to say, I've been impressed by News Talk Plus. I'm not a subscriber, but the fact that they employed uh, Philip Crump, a.k.a. Thomas Cranmer, is amazing and producing great stuff. People need to understand that anything with two heads is a freak. Examples, the Mary Party, the Green Party governance. It is true because you can't have two systems of government or two sets of leaders. It diminishes accountability and leads to divided decision-making. Good morning, Rodney. Nice to have you back, safe and sound. If you want to learn and understand biblical prophecy and Bible truth, tune into Channel 206 if you have Sky or Channel 26 free to air. Oh, my goodness, I don't have a TV at the moment. You'll be hooked if you're searching for the truth. First Light TV have changed 
my life from a sad old ignorant Roman Catholic to an excited at peace and with hope Christian. And boy, do I know so much more now. You'll be blessed with love and blessing. Well, I'm going to do that, Raywin. Thank you for that note. When I get my TV hooked up one day. Welcome back, Rodney. Would you consider interviewing Tariana Turia sometime? Oh, I would love to interview her. Would be lovely to listen to her dulcet voice and old-fashioned common sense from Jenna. Oh, Tariana Turia is wonderful to talk to. Do you know a funny story she told me? I hope I'm not betraying a conference. She always voted national. Because she was raised by mm, her auntie. They were dairy farmers, and so they voted national. And I said, well, how come you stood for the Labour Party? She said, well, they asked me. <laughs> and, of course, she never liked Helen Clark. And Helen Clark never liked her because Tariana had her own views. Anyway, it's a wee vignette. The Elizabeth Rada interviews some feedback. Hi, Rodney. I've just listened to your interview with Dr. Elizabeth Rada, and I'm in awe of not only your skill, oh, enough of me, and knowledge of the English language, but also the way Dr. Rada can explain the history of the treaty and its complexities and her knowledge and understanding of the English language. She is truly wonderful. This lady should be running the Ministry of Education portfolio and also probably running the Waitangi Tribunal. Why is it that common sense and responsibility never seem to be what is important when setting up ministers in positions of power? Rodney, that must be one of the best interviews you have ever done, and I'm so thankful for you doing it. I intend to listen to this again and soak in more of what you're both saying. Thanks, Rodney. Cheers. Mike from Foxton. Mike, I love your feedback. It is always uh, wonderful, and I regard you as our most avid Bless you. Oh, Ewan McQueen interview. Good morning. Loved your interview with Ewan McQueen on One Sun in the Sky. If your listeners are interested in this topic, there's a similar book available called Change and Context. Another look at the Treaty of Waitangi in 2022. Available from Nationwide Books, again, self-published, but it has been impossible to get any reviews or publicity. If you're interested, I can send you the publisher sheet and forward a free copy. Roger, I would love that. And we will have the author on. It might be you. Because we love discussing uh, books and ones that other people won't touch. Please send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at radio. Love your feedback. Need your feedback. It's like uh, nourishment for the show. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you so much for mm, sharing your moon, morning with us. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, you might have guessed I love those. I loved interviewing those guests, maybe too much, but I'm enjoying being back as well. It's wonderful to be, not about being on air and talking to interesting people, it's about this freedom, just to talk and debate and to discuss what is otherwise verboten ideas. Like with Professor Moon, we criticised, how dare we? We criticised the Human Rights Commission and their report. And they don't book any criticism, as Paul Moon explained to us. I couldn't believe that. I couldn't believe they wouldn't engage with one of New Zealand's most eminent historians on his specialist topic area. Because their report is wrong actually wrong. Does it matter though? 
because they create the history to make our future. That's what's happening at the Human Rights Commission. And teaching it to our kids because they're the one source of truth. And we heard about the one source of truth and the disinformation project from retired judge David Harvey. I've always emphasized the judge and I always emphasize the retired because oh, it's wonderful to have a judge on and be talking to a judge, but he has to be a retired judge to be talking frankly and freely like he does. But what ended up, what started out as an interview about the disinformation project sort of transmogrified, did it not, into a discussion about being a judge and into the bigger issues that we confront with critical theory and the thinking that is going on behind the disinformation project. And Mr. Luxon, I know you won't be listening to the show, but maybe someone who knows you is listening to the show. Shut that thing down. Really? Just withdraw all funding. You don't have to shut it down. Just don't use our money to pay for a project by an avowed neo-Marxist. Tell us what we can and can't think and how we need to have legislation to stop us talking and thinking from a neo-Marxist. If you can't see that as wrong, God help us all. You're on Rally Check Radio. Looking forward to talking to you Thursday. Thank you so much for having me in your home, in your car, in your place of work, wherever you may be. Thank you for sharing your time with me and with Rally Check Radio. Talk soon. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio.